Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. For God so loved the world. Everybody knows that, don't you? You want to say it with me? Let's try the King James Version. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Did you see how people who have been in church or in Christianity for any length of time, they know that one. That's the heartbeat of the gospel, isn't it? It's not a long scripture, but I remember when I was sitting in Sunday school class, and that was the scripture we were supposed to memorize for the next Sunday. It looked like a chapter to me. It was huge. But once I got it memorized, I've never forgotten it. For God's so loved. And there's so many things about that scripture, so many truths to bring out about that. One of those truths that I'm going to be talking about today is described by my sermon, and I think you'll understand this more very quickly when I get into my sermon. My title is No Cheap Substitutes. This world is full of cheap substitutes. Now, when I was growing up, we were not rich people. We were not destitute, but my father was just a blue-collar worker that Paid the bills. We didn't have a lot of extra. And whenever we would have a fancy breakfast, it was never a fancy breakfast. It was a substitute fancy breakfast. So dad would call it ham and eggs. We're having ham and eggs in the morning. But what it really was, powdered eggs and spam. Now, neither one of those, I don't know where powdered eggs come from. must be from imitation chickens. I'm not sure. But spam isn't ham. We've got a fan of spam here today. I tread cautiously for my sermon. But sometimes the the substitute, the imitation, works out all right for us. I will buy generic uh, prescriptions when I can. It's not the real thing. It's not the brand name. It's not the one the company invented it. But it saves me a lot of money, and it's, it's an equivalent I'll buy the store brand from time to time. My theory is it all comes out of the same factory, different label. I can save a little money buying store brand. Cubic zirconium is a fake diamond. It's actually a a laboratory-grown diamond that looks very much like a diamond. can be bought for a fraction of the price. Uh, My research tells me that It is virtually impossible to discern by the naked eye the difference, but the experts can easily see the difference. And women might not mind purposely wearing uh, cubic zirconium. 
if they intend to, if it's affordable, if it's reasonable, if it looks nice. But, mister, if you tried to pass one off for a diamond and she found out about it, you're in big trouble. If they buy it and they know it, it's okay, but don't try and fool them. We're just surrounded by imitation things. Now, this little machine right here, this, this Yamaha, that can be a grand piano. It can be a studio upright piano. It can be electric piano. It can be violins. It can be trumpet, brass, woodwinds, and all kinds of other weird noises that we can't seem to figure out how to work out into our worship. And it's all just digital. It's all recreated in there. It's, it's not the real acoustic thing like the uh, baby grand sitting down there, but it can sound just like it. The drums, my drummers have fussed at me. They just finally got tired of fussing at me, but that's not real drums. You ask them if that's real drums. They say, no, that's not real drums. It's electronic, everything coming out of that, and, and I have more authority than they do, and I said, we're going to stick with that because it's easier to mix for the congregation and for the room than the live drums are. But they are not happy playing these imitation drums over there. We just don't know where we're going to run into the real thing and where we're not, do we? There was this past year one popular grocery store that had to, stop, had to pull a lot of its beef products off the shelf because it was imported beef. Imported beef is the, is the code name for horse meat. And when they found out it had horse meat in it, at least blended with it, they had to pull it off the shelves. If you want to know which one, you can talk to me later. And then you can try and figure out if you've been eating their meat. So sometimes the products meet a need, don't they? And, and sometimes uh, imitation things are, are not good. Uh, what one very popular restaurant calls chicken nuggets isn't chicken. I was told that it's made out of the part of the chicken that flies over the fence last. The hamburgers were discovered to be made from pink slime. It's full of ammonia. And the uh, Mr. Rib, <laughs> to, to avoid <laughs> indicting any particular company, <laughs> the Mr. Rib sandwich is made of over 70 ingredients, counting the chemicals, and the meat portion is from restructured pig innards coated in salt and specifically tripe, heart, and scalded cow stomachs. <laughs> uh, I'll have one to go. <laughs> I, was, I was holding revival back when I was evangelist, and the pastor asked me, what do you like? The people would like to bring you something. What do you like for dessert? I said, I like pie. Uh, not a big cake person, but I eat cake from time to time. But I, I like pie. And so he announced from the pulpit, said, the evangelist likes pie. Bring him a pie. And a lady met me at the, at the back door after service, and she said, what kind of pie do you like? Well, there's several that I like. And the first one that I thought of is I was hungry for an apple pie. I said, I, I like apple pie. She said, have you ever had mock apple pie? Now, how many of you ladies know where I'm going with this? You know, it can be soda crackers, it can be Ritz crackers, but there's no apples anywhere to be found. So she brought me a mock apple pie. I didn't want a mock apple pie. I, I wanted an apple pie. 
So a couple nights later, she asked me how I enjoyed the pie, and I thanked her for it. And she said, what other kind of pie do you have? And like a fool, I said, I like pecan pie. And what did she say? Have you ever had a mock pecan pie? I quit telling her what kind of pie I wanted after I got a mock pecan pie. But sometimes you just want the real thing. You know what I mean? My God never gives cheap substitutes and imitations. And we have some interesting scriptures that kind of help us understand God gives the real deal. Remember the woman at the well? And she was wanting water, but Jesus was talking about something that he said, if you drink this, you'll never thirst again. Now, we understand the context. He was not talking about the actual physical water, but he was talking about satisfying a spiritual thirst that this woman had. And it was, in, in every sense, it was the real deal. It was water that would not make you want more water, but water that you would never thirst again. And when it comes to the things of God... Imitations and substitutes just aren't his game plan. And it wouldn't satisfy us either. So Jesus gave this little example to demonstrate how God gives the genuine. He said, now, which of you uh, would give your child, if they asked for a piece of bread, would give them a stone? Which of you, if they asked for a fish, you would give them a serpent? Which of you, if they asked for an egg, would you give them a scorpion? And, of course, the implied answer is, well, none of us would do that for our child. If they want bread, they get bread. And Jesus said, right. And if you are evil people and you know how to give good gifts to people who ask, to those that you love and love you and trust you, how much more? How much more will my Heavenly Father give good things to those that ask him. And I believe it's in the book of Luke in his account where the wording is slightly different. Jesus said, how much more will my heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit? Now that's one of the things we have to understand when people are confused about our doctrine and our experience of the Holy Spirit today. We call ourselves Pentecostal. It relates back to the day of Pentecost when the Spirit was poured out upon all flesh in the last days. We're in the last days. Remember that? And people who do not believe that the Holy Spirit is being poured out upon all flesh today like it was back then, they believe if you are Pentecostal and if you are filled with the Spirit and if you do any of those weird things that Spirit-filled people do, you have a demon. But see, the answer to that is that if God gives good things and only good things, you're not going to ask Him for a piece of bread and get a rock, nor an egg and get a scorpion, nor the Holy Spirit and get a demon. He knows how to give good things. So if God knows how to give good things, we expect such from him. Now here's an example of where we fall short. And we sometimes try to fool God, and and probably in some sense fool ourselves, and give cheap substitutes to God. First of all, under the category of the spirit of the Pharisees, we'll find a few items here that are cheap substitutes for things that we should in reality be bringing to God. Jesus had to deal with Pharisees. 
And every time in Scripture, when he encountered them or spoke of them, he addressed them for their faults. He never praised the Pharisees. He did not like what they did. He did not approve of the things they did. And he was constantly admonishing them, correcting them, devoted more of his time in his teachings to addressing the corruption and the failures of the Pharisees than any other group of people. And the reason for that is this. There were for the people that were listening to Jesus, for the audience, there were now two choices, two options. And that is they could follow the influence of the Pharisees whom they had been following. They were very legalistic. They knew the Old Testament forward and backward, as they say. And they had messed it all up. And that was part of why Jesus was so disturbed with the Pharisees. But then came along Jesus, and he was the antithesis of the Pharisees. If they were proud and arrogant, he was humble and lowly. If they were legalistic, he was not. He was just everything the Pharisees weren't. And you've got these two stark choices. So when he is fishing for people, and he realizes these people are going to make a decision, they're either going to continue to follow the teachings of the Pharisees, or they're going to hear something fresh and new and exciting and inviting, and they're going to follow me. So he did not hesitate in the process when he's offering an alternative to the miserable religion of the Pharisees. He did not miss an opportunity to tell the people why they should not buy into the teaching and the religion of the Pharisees. So he was all the time telling this is what's wrong with their religion. That's why he kept going back to it. Now, we probably wouldn't use that kind of a tactic today if we were talking about a variety of churches. I don't think it would be worth our time to say, well, now this denomination over here, you don't want to go over there because they got these problems, because we got problems too. But if we were talking about the difference between Christianity and a false religion, we would do more than just tell about how good our religion is. We would want to be able to point out why this other false religion is false. We would do that. So we'd use a similar tactic of Jesus in that sense. In the 23rd chapter of Matthew, that's the famous uh, hypocrite chapter where he talked in, in throughout the entire chapter. Uh, most of the talk was about the Pharisees. And he told them not to follow their example, and he called the Pharisees hypocrites seven times just in that one chapter. Scribes, Pharisees. Hypocrites. Then he would speak about why he proclaimed them to be hypocrites. Now, on six other occasions, he called the Pharisees hypocrites outside of the 23rd chapter of Matthew. They were getting kind of irritated with him. Every time he talked about them, he addressed their hypocrisy. One of the things that the Pharisees did that we can probably make an application to today is they brought cheap substitutes to God. One of those was they substituted the traditions of men 
for the commandments of God. And here's a chapter and, and verse to explain that, Matthew chapter 15, verses 8 through 9. Some Pharisees and teachers of religious law now arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. And they asked him, why do your disciples disobey our age-old tradition? That's as plain, as they say, as the nose on your face. They are upset that Jesus is letting his disciples ignore the traditions of the Pharisees. And Jesus replied, Why do you, by your traditions, violate direct commandments of God? For instance, God says, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who speaks disrespectfully of a father or mother must be put to death. However, and I didn't put the rest of the scripture there because I just wanted to fill in for you, what he was talking about is they said they would get around the responsibility of taking care of their parents by using this, this gift that they had, this money, this resource, and say, well, I can't, I can't give this to my parents because I have reserved this as a gift for God. Therefore, they were skirting the responsibility of taking care of their family. And Jesus knew their game. You can't play Jesus. He knows So when they said, well, why are these people not obeying our tradition? Our tradition says that they must wash their hands before they eat because they observed Jesus and the disciples and they were eating with unwashing hands and it offended the Pharisees terribly and they challenged Jesus. And Jesus said, you yourselves don't even follow your own traditions. Now, here's one of the important things about it. It was not the commandment of God that they had to wash their hands to eat they had written that themselves that was a man-made rule it doesn't mean it's a bad rule it means it's not on the same level as a commandment of God if I don't wash my hands before I eat according to this uh, I'm not going to sever my relationship with God I'm not going to lose my salvation I'm not going to die and go to hell but I might get sick It might not be the healthiest thing to do, but it's not a commandment of God. And then Jesus goes on to point out the Pharisees circumventing this regulation with their parents, and he quotes Isaiah 29, 13, and says this as it applies to the Pharisees. And this was Isaiah hundreds of years before who prophesied this. Yet Jesus went back and picked it up and said, Now Isaiah says, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Their worship is a farce. For they teach man-made ideas as commands of God. Did you get that last part? Do you think that's a bad thing to do, to teach man-made ideas as the commands of God? Oh, I've got, I got a lot of people out here going like this. We should not use the, command, the, 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 the ideas, the traditions of man, and elevate them to the level of commandment of God. But we do. And that makes us pharisaical. And so, you know what, as maturing Christians, we should be very careful in our Christian walk that we don't get hung up in man-made traditions and elevate them to the level of thus saith the Lord, because it's only thus saith you, or thus saith another man, or thus saith our tradition and our practice. The Pharisees had expanded the Ten Commandments with their own addendum. 
Now the laws were over 600 because they kept adding things they thought sounded good. And when you keep adding two, you just frustrate the grace of God. Like there are particular strains of Christianity, denominations that are not satisfied with the simple fact that you are saved by grace through faith. That's simple. That's as simple as it gets. But in order to complicate it, they say, plus, you have to be baptized in water. Let me, let me tell you something. Getting baptized in water does not save you. You had better be saved before you get baptized in water because it's a testimony of what has happened in your life. It doesn't save you. But there are some denominations that you're not saved until you get dunked. That's frustrating the grace of God. Either the blood of Jesus Christ is all-sufficient or it leaves it as insufficient. What is it? So we have our own pharisaical things that sometimes we latch on to. And I go very cautiously to my next point. Because people tend to get very uncomfortable when we begin to talk about those things that we have traditionally elevated to the level of God's commands. And not only do they get uncomfortable, but sometimes they get defensive. So I'm just going to cover a few, and I'm going to leave the more volatile ones for another time. But did you know that worship on Sunday is not a command of God, it's a tradition? It's not a bad one, but it's just a tradition. It fits us very well because our culture has historically been uh, polarized around having the weekends off and having Sunday as a special day. I've had the privilege of living in a community where Sunday was, was uh, very much revered as the Lord's Day, and businesses observed that, and everybody remember the blue law? Everybody remember the blue law when you couldn't sell things on Sunday? Gro- you couldn't buy groceries on Sunday at one time. There were, you just didn't buy and sell on Sunday. It was a holy day, and all the merchants cooperated with that. Uh, but all kinds of things are open on Sundays now. But we... Worship on Sunday, it's convenient for our job schedule, but it's not a commandment. And those people who were more traditional, almost pharisaical perhaps, got real upset whenever the church figured out that in this day and age we're living when a lot more businesses are open on Sunday and people have to work, that let's have church on Saturday night. And the Pharisees went, oh, you can't have church on Saturday night and be real church. Real church is Sunday morning. And they had a real hard time swallowing that. Then they started figuring out all the problems with people are going to end up going on Saturday night and sleeping in on Sundays. What's wrong with us? We've got to get to the point where we realize, I don't care. I just want people to go to church. But it's a hard one to get by. Our worship service format that we have here today, it's a tradition. Early churches did not have a sermon and, and, and a worship and, a, and an offering and, and an altar call. All of these things are, are the development over years of tradition that we do. Early churches, they prayed and they, and they sang, but they didn't sing uh, the kind of hymns we sing. The hymn book that we have was not published back then, I promise you. 
They sang psalms because that's what they knew. They came out of Judaism, and they knew the psalms, and they sang them. It was a bunch of Old Testament uh, literature and, and concepts and theology and ideas, but they sang them unto God. That's all they knew. Then they begin to write. The Bible talks about hymns. They begin to, to write some songs, but we don't know what those songs were. And they certainly didn't have the, uh, the major keys like we have today. Uh, everything was was totally different in the music structure in those days. We even went through a, 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 an era in church history when the monks had the a, atonal chanting that people find sometimes hauntingly beautiful and some people find it, where's the music? I don't understand the music that's going on. It doesn't match our Western ears. But we've got a lot of tradition in our services today. And in those days, they didn't even have a Bible. They didn't. They couldn't say in the early church, now everybody bring your Bible next Sunday. First of all, the copies of the Old Testament were on scrolls, and you didn't go around carrying scrolls with you everywhere you went. You couldn't afford to have a set of scrolls. The scrolls were in the synagogue somewhere, and they were preserved and rolled out for people to to read. And can you imagine on a scroll trying to get down to a particular chapter and verse as you have to unroll that thing through book after book and chapter after chapter and get down. And uh, you couldn't have what we used to call in CA called sword drills where you'd <laughs> stand up and open your Bible, the first one to find a scripture and read it, one. And can you do, imagine doing that with scrolls? Half hour later, somebody, I'm almost there, I'm almost there, I got it. We've got traditions. And they didn't preach a sermon out of the Bible. They didn't have a Bible. They may have read some Old Testament scripture. But what they did do a lot is they would read, like if Paul wrote a letter, he would say, pass it around among the churches. And when they'd gather, here's a letter from Paul, and here's what he's telling us. So it was applicable to more than one church, what he would write. It was good theology and wanted all churches to understand that. Uh, they, and there's evidence that in the early church, uh, and, and I love this, there's, there's strong evidence that the speaker sat down while the congregation stood. I don't know why we didn't keep that tradition. As we went through songs in church history, music, uh, Johann Sebastian Bach was appointed as the minister of music uh, for the church, and he wrote some of his best well-known pieces were written because they were written for church music. And his orchestra, they had not yet developed the brass, but they had woodwinds, and they had harpsichord, and they had organ. And he wrote for those instruments. And he would write uh, enough to have five songs every Sunday and then wrote it on a rotation for every seven years. He could start back over. But look how many songs he had to write. And when you came to church, you sit down, you listen to the orchestra perform religious music. Very, very uh, moving powerful classical music but they didn't sing there was no words they just listened and if we ever just had a concert today people would come unglued because we've got a tradition you go to church you have to sing and people still have a hard time adjusting to different kinds of worship because they're stuck in tradition but it's not a commandment of god and then luther he came along he began to write hymns that of all things Luther was really on the cutting edge of his time. He began to write songs that included singing on the offbeat, the downbeat, what we call syncopated music. 
and it made you want to move and clap and be happy. And he brought this into a church that was used to coming out of monks chanting and coming into Bach doing his long hair classical music into Luther writing some hip hop. And the church had a problem adjusting to that. Sunday school's good, but it's a tradition from the 1700s. It started because children were forced to work in factories and they had Sunday off and they weren't getting any education and the church stepped up to the plate and said, we need to educate our children. So they started Sunday school. And that's why they got a, an education to read and to write. It wasn't the kind of Sunday school we have today where we try and teach them Bible things and scriptures. They were really trying to educate their children who otherwise were dominated in, in, the, uh, uh, in the factories. Uh, their lives were just filled with, with nothing but work and sleep. The frequency of our, our meeting is a tradition. Uh, Sunday morning, uh, we saw many churches move away from Sunday night, and, and that, was, that was blasphemous. Here at Westside, we have devoted Wednesday night to youth outreach. And that was a little hard for some people to get rid of because typically you had Bible study, which was never a Bible study. It was a, a short sermon and go home. Or you had prayer meeting, which was never a prayer meeting. It was a Bible study. And, but nevertheless, we had something. But we moved away from that because we found that there was a necessary ministry that needed to happen that, that uh, at the time we couldn't get anybody to step up and do this. And, and I said, I've only got a handful coming to Bible study. Uh, if you guys want to come help, we'll go help. But we're going to go and we're going to minister to the kids on Wednesday night. But it, it, it wasn't a commandment of God what we do. We just did what we had to do. Here's the point. Are you strong enough in your faith to handle the truth about traditions? If you cannot, then your religion is anchored in the wrong things. And Sometimes we bring our traditions to God. And we call them commandments of God. But mature people understand the difference or are willing to study the difference and handle that rather than getting angry because we've stepped on somebody's traditions. Now, the second thing the Pharisees did was they substitute works for faith. And the book of Ephesians says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. There was another embarrassing flaw in the religion of the Pharisees. They boasted of their works. They boasted of their fancy prayers. They boasted of their religious duties. And they criticized everybody who did not do their works and their prayers and their duties. And once again, we have to be very cautious about being overly critical of the Pharisees if we are guilty of the same thing. I've had so many people in my years of ministry have come to me and they've They've confided in me that they've always in their life felt like they were never good enough to please God. News bulletin, you're not. None of us here today are good enough for God. Ephesians says we're saved by what? Grace. Grace. You cannot be good enough for God. You have to fall on Him with all of your faults and all of your failures and say, God, I'm just not good enough. And God says, I knew that a long time ago. I'm just waiting for you to figure it out. But then once you get saved, you should have a heart to want to please God and do better than you were before. Because Paul said, 
when he was writing in the book of Romans. Now, some of you people, when I'm talking about grace, this is kind of a paraphrase of what Paul was saying. When I'm talking about grace, that where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Some of you people are just about ready to to say, well, therefore, shouldn't we sin a whole lot more so we're going to have a whole lot more grace? And Paul said, I knew you were going to go there. So, no. Even though sin makes grace abound, we can't abuse grace. God will not let us abuse his grace. So once you make a, a, an effort to start walking for the Lord and realize your salvation came free, but he does expect you now to try and please him in everything you do. The next thing that the Pharisees do is they substitute image for character. They wanted to look good. They wore the robes. They, they, they loved their adornments. And take, for instance, phylacteries. Now, that's a word you will find in Scripture that not all the time do people understand what phylacteries were, but it was a small leather box that had pieces of, of uh, parchment in there upon which were written s- specific verses And you go back to the book of Deuteronomy where Moses told the people, he said, now write these things on the doorposts. Bind them on your forehead. And teach these commandments to your children. And there's a, a lot of people who are very literal in their understanding of the Bible. And if you're the kind of person that you're going to come to me and say, I take the Bible very literally, no, you don't. You only think you do. You only take the Bible literally when you want to take it literally. Because Jesus said, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. I don't think anybody's done that yet. If your hand offends you, cut it off. I don't think anybody's done that yet. So you you know that there's a balance to taking the Bible literally. But you don't always. And these people looked at that and said, well, that's literal. I want to do that. God said Bind them, write them on the, on the doorposts, bind them on your foreheads. So the Pharisees made this little leather box and put some scripture in it and made them a headband and wore this leather box on their head and on their wrist. And they were proud of it. It was one of those things that it became such a source of pride that the fancier the box or the bigger, the more holy you were because you had a lot more scripture in there. And Jesus talked about the Pharisees being so proud of their phylacteries and their image. But their heart was so far from God. And he nailed it when he looked at the Pharisees and he said, you people remind me of a tomb. It's all whitewashed on the outside and made to look nice, but it's stinking and full of dead things on the inside. He was not afraid to speak the truth. He pulled no punches, likening them to people who just want to look good, but essentially they don't feel like they have to be good. Cheap substitutes we bring to God, make a good show for God, but we'll go home and live like we want to live. That doesn't please God. Because God goes home. He knows what you're doing. Then there is, that's the spirit of the Pharisees. There's the spirit of the seven sons of Siva. And this comes from the book of Acts, chapter 19. Where there's a band of Jews who were going around and trying to cast out demons in the name of Paul. That's uh, uh, in the name of Jesus that Paul preaches. And the seven C- sons of Siva thought that was a cool idea. 
And so they tried it. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what happened to this band of Jews who were trying to cast out demons by the, by the power of Jesus whom Paul preaches. But once the seven sons of Siva put it to the test, this demon responded out of this, this guinea pig they had and said, Jesus, I know. Paul, I know. I don't know you. And then because the demon figured out that they didn't know Jesus, uh, that they were not Jesus, they were not Paul, that they must not have any power whatsoever, he began to whip them. And the Bible says he tore them up so bad that he sent them running away naked and bruised. They were trying to substitute anointing, ritual for anointing, ritual for power, talent for anointing. And they thought all you have to do is just know how to do it. But it's not what you know. It's who you know. And do you know Jesus Christ? Not what do you know about him. Do you know him? And when I say do you know him, that means do you have a relationship with him? Not do you acknowledge, yes, I believe there was a man called Jesus. I understand that. I believe that. I receive it. When I'm saying do you know Jesus, that means do you understand he died for you? Do you you understand he bore your sins on the cross? Do you understand he paid your price? You were guilty, but he took the, the, the pain. He took the punishment, and you realizing you can't be good enough to please God, you come to Jesus and you say, thank you for being my sacrifice. Therefore, because you have done that for me, I will live for you because you paid the ultimate price for me. That's what it means to know Jesus. You don't know him if you have not come into fellowship with him in that dimension. Then there's the spirit of Cain. And this is the story from the book of Genesis. The story moves very rapidly. Cain was the first one born. Then, then Abel was born later. And immediately in the next verse, it says, when they were grown, and it takes us right into their, their life's occupations. We don't know anything about their childhood. Cain and Abel. And Cain, his, his uh, uh, giftings, his interests he gravitated towards agriculture. He became a dirt farmer. And Abel, he was more suited for being a shepherd, so he took care of animals and livestock. And it says that when they came to bring a gift to God, that Abel brought a firstborn of the flock. And Cain brought fruit and vegetables to the Lord. Immediately, God accepted Abel's sacrifice or gift, and he did not accept Cain's, and Cain got angry, jealous, and God had a conversation. What's wrong, Cain? Well, you accepted his, but you didn't accept mine, and God said, then go get something that pleases me. Let's fix this right now. You know, the solution is always easy. But we complicate it so bad because of attitudes, because of pride. We just don't do the simple thing. God says, it's very simple, Cain. I'm not going to judge you. Just go get something that pleases me. This doesn't please me. 
But rather than doing that, what Cain did, he decided to fix it another way. I'm angry with Abel, I'm jealous of Abel, let's kill Abel. Then everything will be all right. So he plotted. And he said to Abel, let's go out in the field and just hang out tomorrow. Way out away from everybody. (laughs) Sounds suspicious. And so Abel says, sounds great to me. Have some brother time. They went out there and Cain killed Abel. His problem's not over by any means. And he certainly took the wrong remedy to fixing the inappropriate gift to God. Why not just go get the right gift? Now, here's the problem. that There are four things that are suggested about what was wrong with Cain's sacrifice or his gift. Uh, the first is the obvious one, the common one that we think of, that Abel brought a blood sacrifice and Cain did not. We understand that because the theory points to the animal that was slain in the Garden of Eden that the skin was used to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve after they sinned. So we kind of tie that back to that story, and we believe that because that happened, that God made it apparent that because of sin, there would have to be blood shed. Now, the sacrificial system of the Jews was not anywhere close to being in order yet. But we think we point, we point back to Adam coming to, coming to an understanding. We have failed, and something has to die, and there has to be a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice, to constantly remind us. We're sinners, and this is the penalty for sin. And they would have taught that to their children. So we're going on the theory that Abel and Cain both should have known better, but Cain didn't do better. The next theory makes the observation that Abel specifically brought a firstborn. But it does not say that Cain brought the first fruits. That language is conspicuously missing. So it doesn't appear as though he brought what God would consider the best. There's also the theory that uh, we have the inclusion of the words in, in Abel's sacrifice and their fat portions. He brought the firstborn and the fat portions. And you have to understand that in the teaching about the sacrifices, the fat portions was the prime stuff. That was the good stuff. And that was what was burnt and given to God. It was not the junk. We would often think about, give the fat and give me the meat. But that wasn't the way they thought about it in the sacrifices, nor the way God. God says, give me the fat portions. I want that. You can keep whatever's left over. You can eat the scrap. I want the best. But there was no Hebrew equivalent for fat portions that goes along with vegetables and fruit. So there was nothing there that indicated that he gave the best of what he had. And the fourth theory is that scholars suggest that the attitudes of the two sons were vastly different. Abel came in obedience and humility and Cain came in arrogance. And with this sense of reluctant duty, it's time to give a gift to God again. And I would rather be out here hoeing my potatoes and tending to my corn I don't want to take time, but I'll go do it because I have to. There's an attitude problem here. And the fact is, no matter what theory, and all of them are very plausible, and it could be a combination of all of those things. Everything was out of order about Cain's sacrifice. The bottom line is Cain's sacrifice was wrong. It was inadequate, and it just did not please God, and he didn't fix it the right way. And then we have the spirit of Cain that lives on today, like the spirit of the Pharisees lives on today. 
In the spirit of Cain, we have the stingy giver. They have not come yet to understand what it means to systematically give of their bounty to God. It's particularly hard for new converts to get a hold of this because they have lived their lives under a totally different economy. Not a God-inspired economy, but a let's-survive economy. And when you come into church and you get saved and you give your life to Him and you have to come under God's economy, it doesn't make sense to people who have never operated under God's economy. So they're the stingy giver. They see people giving in the, in, the, in the offering, and in order to be a part of it, they slip in their pocket and get a dollar, and they drop it in, and they're just participating like everybody else. But they don't have this systematic understanding of what it means to be able to give to God sacrificially. And in their old economy... They were scraping every dollar together. They could get their hands on to keep their bills paid and manage their debts, the debts that they themselves had created so they could have things, cars and boats and homes and credit cards and and furniture. And, And they just see this mentality comes to church and sees tithes and offerings as another bill. You put it over in the bill section. And we can't pay any more bills because we're already maxed out. Therefore, we cannot pay our tithes. It's a totally flip-flopped concept. Totally dismissed and disconnected from the financial structure that God wants for us. Tithing is not a bill. And it's not a debt. Tithing is a gift. It's the foundation of a healthy and successful plan that ultimately glorifies God in what we do. It demonstrates our life of obedience and discipline. It completes our worship. Our worship is incomplete until we learn how to gift to God. And if you try to work God into your budget, you're going at this backward. Your budget has to work into God. So we have to start all over. And here's the difficult part. You scrap all of your financial planning, and you start with a godly budget, and you you realize that first, first you pay God. And I don't want to make a big deal out of the word pay because it's not a debt. But first, you give to God. The second thing you do is you give to you. That's financial planning. And then you pay everybody else. Two are first. And so many people don't understand that. First, they don't give to God. And second, they don't pay themselves. They try to survive on what's left over. And you're going to spend the rest of your life trying to survive what's left over, yet keep creating the debts to everybody else. You're going to end up with nothing. Pay God first. Give to him. Give to yourself second. And pay everybody else after that. That forces you to live within your means. Now, here's an interesting bit of trivia. A new five-year constituency study released by the State of the Plate. (laughs) gives an inside look at the financial giving and spiritual practices of 4,413 people who donate 10% or more each year. According to the Christian Post, researchers compared tithers to non-tithers using nine financial health indicators and found that tithers were better off in every category. 77% of those who tithe give 11 to 20% or more of their income, far more than the baseline of 10%. 97% make it a priority to give to their local church. I don't know how many people 
that I have run into in my life that try to explain to me why they don't give to the local church because they've already pledged to give to some Christian station or radio station or television station or evangelist somewhere who's doing a better work than we are. But, Pastor, would you marry and bury us? Benny Hinn's not available. 70%, this is a good one, 70% of those people tithe on their gross income and not their net. So those people who want to come in and have a, a counseling session with me, Pastor, I need an hour of your time. I need to come in and figure out, do I tithe on my gross or do I tithe on my net? Is that really the biggest issue in your life? Is that really what you're talking about dollars here? We're talking about pocket change sometimes. Whatever you accumulate on your desk when you come and empty your pockets makes the difference many times. Do I tithe? Listen, if that's where your relationship with God is, we got some other work to do in other areas. 63% started giving 10% or more between childhood and their 20s because when you learn at an early age to give to God, it becomes a habit you cannot break. Now, here's a couple of interesting things. Tithers carry much less debt than most people and are financially better off than Christian non-tithers. 80% of tithers have no unpaid credit card bills. 74% have no car payment. 48% have their own their own home. And 28% are completely free. You want to know why that is? Because they learned discipline. And it really translates into your lifestyle. And what keeps a non-tithing Christian from giving? 38% says, I can't afford it. 33% say they have too much debt, and 18% says, my spouse will not let me. But if you ask the other spouse, you know what they'll say? My spouse does not let me. The spirit of Cain. Then there's the barterer, the people that deal in goods and services. Uh, They're not too crazy about giving money but they'll, they'll trade something else to God and call it good. They'll swap out. Lord, I'm going to call my time worth $20 an hour. And if I can give five hours a week to the church, that's $100. And that's bigger than my tithe check anyway, so I'll just swap it out. I'm worth something. They'll work it off with God. The barterers bringing basically cheap substitutes for what God is asking for us. Or the people who have another place for their money to go, which I mentioned a while ago. I, there was a, a family I knew, and I've been the pastor of three churches that had Christian schools. And uh, there was a family in one church that explained to me, Pastor, we do not pay tithe because our children are in Christian school and we pay their tuition And we believe that because we are educating them in Christian things that our tithe is better used by educating our children than it is as a tithe. And, of course, as a pastor, what what can you say? I mean, I'm in a no-win situation. If I try and get preachy at that moment, you just walk away and shake your head and say they don't get it. They don't get it. That's not what tithe is. Pastor, I don't tithe because I support this other ministry out there. You don't get it. This spirit of Cain. People that have plenty. And sometimes things they don't necessarily need. I, I don't want to get too personal here, but maybe off the top of my head, 
somebody has a garage sale, and when everything's been bought, the people are going to bought they load. People are going to buy. They load everything else up, bring it to the church, and donate it, and ask for a receipt. And they say, "That's my tithe for the next month." I gave probably two thousand dollars worth of stuff, and it was all going for a nickel apiece, and it wouldn't sell. My final point: If God gives only the genuine, we owe Him the same thing. If God doesn't give cheap substitutes, we owe Him the same thing. Would you say it with me again? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. People, that was not a cheap substitute. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish. That was God's best. That was his best. It was his best. He didn't send down a cheap substitute. He gave his best. You don't get any better than God's only begotten son. And he didn't come down here and insulate himself from the pain and the suffering, the agony of this world or the agony of the cross. He came and went through it just like any human being would have to have gone through it had they had to suffer for their sins. There was no cheap route. He did not call. 10,000 angels to rescue him from the anguish of the cross. He went through it. He did not summon one of his disciples and said, Here, would you carry this cross? My back is bleeding. My legs are weak. He carried it and he walked the whole way himself. He gave his best. He gave his all. He did not, God did not send an angel to die in our place. He sent his son. And what are we to think? of the cheap trinkets we keep trying to buy God off with when he calls us to obedience? What are we to think of our pitiful basket of fruit or our substitute plans when he calls us to do something? God, I won't do that, but I'll do two of these over here. What are we to think of that when we stand there and realize he gave his best and Jesus gave his all? And we want to wrestle and bargain with God about minor things. Have you done your best? Have you given your best? And I close with this very appropriate story. When ex-president Jimmy Carter tells in his book, his autobiography, of going to the Naval Academy and graduating, I think he was in the top uh, 25 or 30 of his class of, of hundreds. And he was so proud of his accomplishment. And the admiral came into the room and young Carter was standing at attention. And he asked him about his, his accomplishment, how he did in the academy. And he was very proud to, to respond to the admiral that he had finished in this upper bracket. And he was ready for the admiral to commend him for having done so well among so many. And when he told him what he had accomplished, 
and waited for the accolades and the praise of the admiral, the admiral said, let me ask you something. Did you do your best? And he couldn't answer. And he said in his autobiography, he said he dropped his head and he stared at the floor and he couldn't think how to respond. Because to say, yes, I did my best is to admit that he's still not the best. It's only his best. There's a lot of people better than him. And to admit he didn't do the best was also indicting. And when he lifted his head, the admiral was gone. And folks, when we stand before God and you want to stand there and brag about what you did for him and you think you're going to win his favor and God asks you that one piercing question, I don't care about all that. I don't care about how many people you led to the Lord. I don't care about how much money you gave. I want to know one thing. Did you give me your best? I think you're going to drop your head. And it was an old hymn we used to sing when I was a boy in church. I wonder, have I done my best for Jesus? Since he has done so much for me. And those words are so haunting. I wonder, have you done your best? Have you done your best? Bow your heads.